Hi, this is Corey Turner. And along with my wife, Simone, we are the senior pastors of Numa Church. I wanted to thank you for listening to our podcast today. You're about to hear a message from one of our team that we pray builds your faith and empowers you to follow Jesus more closely. Enjoy the message. I was reading Psalm 103 this week, and um, I was reading my waterproof Bible in the sauna, by the way. If that makes no sense to you, listen to last week's message. Um, Unfortunately, my friend Brandon wasn't there this time. I was alone in the sauna, so I had a moment with the Lord. But he began to uh, speak to me from Psalm 103, and I felt uh, God wanted to uh, just wanted us to unpack this a bit. So I want to speak about a topic that um, most of the Western church has uh, largely ignored because it's a bit of a, a challenging one for us to reconcile and wrestle with, but it really uh, centers very much on how we understand that we relate to him um, in a way that really honors who he is. But uh, Psalm 103, I'm just going to read, we'll put it up on the screen. My wife leaves me little love notes in my Bible. She's so great. I love when I just come across those. Very nice, love it. Thank you. No. So encourage. I, I leave them in there. I come across them. They encourage me. This is David. He says, um, "Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul." And forget not all of his benefits, who forgives, forgives all our iniquities or all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Come on, that's a good promise. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. More good news. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. More good news. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. That word chide means to like to scold or to rebuke. He does not deal with us according to our sins. Who's thankful for that? nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. See a little phrase repeated here. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, He flourishes like a flower of the field for the wind passes over it and it's gone and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. I want to talk about today uh, the benefits of fearing the uh, fearing God, the benefits of fearing God. Father, thank you that you've been with us. Thank you that you've already been speaking to us. Lord, um, would you speak to us about yourself today that we might understand how to relate to you rightly? 
Lord, let revelation knowledge come that we would fear you. So many good things, Lord, come out of the fear of God, and yet it can be hard for us to reconcile this truth with the fact that you do love us. You're a father. What does it mean to fear you? But Lord, you're a consuming fire. We're to work out our salvation with fear and with trembling. We're to stand in awe of you. John trembled before you. Moses couldn't see your face and live. Father, we want your presence to come and dwell amongst us more tangibly. Lord, let there be a posture of our hearts that that welcomes you. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. So three times in this uh, this passage we just read, we see this phrase, those who fear him. Uh, and anytime anything, something is repeated in scripture several times, it's a good idea to stop and think, okay, why is that being repeated? And what is God trying to highlight? What is he trying to say? Why is it so important that that this was repeated several times? Um it's clear from this passage that there are some very wonderful and special and good things that are uh, reserved for those who fear him. When we fear him, it attracts some good things in our lives. And although it's not explicitly stated, when we don't fear him, it can attract some not good things into our lives. When we lack the fear of the Lord, it can lead us into an apathy. It can lead us into a complacency. It can lead us into uh, a distraction from the things of God. But when we fear him, we begin to relate to him rightly. This, tr this truth really struck me uh, this week. Uh, a couple of us caught up with... Um, Keon and uh, Dylan and Jake, who are starting a business, and we we caught up to pray into the business that they're starting. And um, there was this moment in while we were praying. Uh, sorry, Gemma, you were there as well. <laughs> I didn't mean to leave you out. Um, there's this moment that we uh, were praying, and Jake began to invite and ask that as a team that they would fear the Lord. It was an invitation, Lord, teach us to fear you. And as he began to pray that, I began to feel the presence of God very powerfully in that moment. And I began to hear the voice of God. And I heard God saying, there are not many people who will ask me for that. Where are the people who will invite the fear of the Lord into their life? And it compelled me and it made me think there's something on the other side of that invitation. There's something about that invitation that positions us for God to work in our hearts to a degree and with a depth that makes way for him to bring good things into our life. Do you know that, that if the posture of our heart isn't right, he actually needs to hold back some good things? Because it's possible that if the posture of our heart is not right, then 
God brings his blessing, his good things into our life. And then we begin, instead of worshiping the giver of the gift, we begin to worship the gift. If there's a, if the tendency of our heart is towards idolatry, then the good gift comes from him and we begin to give all of our affection to the gift that he gives us. And so he, and he wants, so he wants to position us and help us to mature and grow to a place where the gift comes, uh, but the affection goes towards him, the giver, and not towards the gift. We see that the lack of the fear of the Lord throughout the Old Testament uh, repeatedly manifests in idolatry. We saw this when, you know, remember the story of Moses going to the top of the mountain, getting the Ten Commandments, and he comes down, and uh, the the he was up there for a while, and all the people kind of got bored. Where'd Moses go? How are we going to connect to God without Moses? Is Has he left us? And somehow Aaron, Moses' brother, agreed to collect all of their gold and create this golden calf that they would have something visible and tangible, which was really just the the gift, the plunder that God had given them coming out of Egypt, and they began to worship this thing. And it's amazing, though, you know, the heart of Aaron, when Moses comes down and confronts uh, Aaron, what did he say? It was like, oh, well, we just threw in the gold in the fire and out popped this gold, this calf. It's like, dude, come on. Can you not take responsibility for the idolatry of your heart? And that's the tendency, you know, we, 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 we're victims, right? We're victims of whatever's going on in our life. And, and we, we tend to, you know, to, to go to that place, uh, but God is calling them to account. Where there's no fear of the Lord, there's idolatry. We see it all through the book of Judges. But God wants to restore to the church a fear of the Lord. There's an outpouring of God's spirit that he wants to bring, that he's even beginning to bring, that is marked by and welcomed by, preceded by a greater fear of the Lord amongst the people of God. Virtually every revival in history, every resurgence of, of the Spirit's work in the church has been preceded by this for the fear of the Lord. I mean, I'm thinking about Jonathan Edwards, who's one of the great revivalists of the, the first great awakening in the 1700s. And uh, he would stand and he would read his sermon in a very monotone way. The Holy Spirit would come and be, would pour, be poured out in that moment. And there's one sermon he preached called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. How about that for a sermon title? How about that for some, some love and mercy? Sinners in the hands of an angry God. And he was painting the picture for all of those who were outside of Christ, how you, you don't realize it, but by a thread, you are hanging uh, over the fires of hell. And that, and that it is only the mercy of God that is holding you and keeping you. And literally in that moment, people start, grabbing onto pillars in the church because they felt like they were slipping into a, an eternity apart from God. You know, there was this awakening of God's revelation of God's holiness and, and the fear of him. Uh, when I was at uh, revival conference last year at Numa Church in Melbourne, great outpouring of the spirit. And that time, even the next day when I wasn't there, when, when really the revival began, on the Sunday, we, we had to come back for our, our church service here. All the kids were like begging us to stay. And, and even Corey said, whatever you got to do, change your flight. And I was like, 
yeah, but we got a church service tomorrow night. So we come back and then the Holy Spirit, you know, pours out. Uh, they had a, a church meeting that lasted literally from like 9 a.m. until 9 p.m. Like it just didn't end. One ran into the other, went all afternoon. But when I, when I watched back that the video and I experienced that moment, it was like this holy terror came upon me and I wasn't even there. It was just this weight of God's presence and his glory uh, that was beautiful and wonderful and healing. And, but there was something almost frightening about it. There was something that was cleansing about it. There was something that made me deeply grateful and thankful for the finished work of Christ. And even the day before, when I had this moment I, I shared about last week where in the presence of God and, and I was crying out, God, I need you to take me higher. And he says, I need you to go lower. So I get down on the floor and just the weight of his presence. And it was beautiful. It was tangible, but it was a little bit frightening. It was a little bit awe-provoking. When uh, years ago, one of the first really significant encounters with God I had, this was not long, this was in the uh, couple years after I came to Christ, I was uh, doing this leadership training program and we, he took this whole class to, uh, the guy who ran it, to these Kenneth Hagin Holy Ghost meetings. And this guy was laying hands on people on the front row and it was like dominoes, you know, just people falling down and, uh, and it was pandemonium. It was chaos, chaos. And, uh, you know, I was a little bit like, all right, well, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm open, but I'm not going to be in the flesh here. So, so, so he lays hands on somebody in the front and like, I'm about 12 rows, rows back and I could just see the like dominoes, people just going down. And so I like grab the chair. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I grab hold because, you know, it's like I can see it coming at me. And it was like this. It was I, I don't know how to explain it other than like this cloud, this. Pillow of air just like knocked me to the ground. And it was like 10,000 volts of electricity going through my body. But what was, what was unique and what, what was interesting about that was what I felt in that moment. It was awe. It was, oh my, I just had an encounter with God. Like that was real. That was, God just knocked me over. And even after that moment, it was like this, in the days that followed, there was just this, this understanding or, or revelation of his holiness that kind of walked with me. And to be honest, it was a little bit uncomfortable. Those next couple of days, things start coming to the surface in my heart. And it was unpleasant, but God was doing a cleansing work. What does David mean here in Psalm 103 when he says, fear him, those who fear him? We can make a mistake reading the Old Testament and coming away and saying, oh, well, that doesn't really apply so much anymore because of the revelation of the New Testament. But do you know that the revelation of the New Testament doesn't apply to us until we put our faith and our trust in Christ? It's Jesus is the one who, who delivers us, who absorbs the wrath of God for us. 
And we see some things in the New Testament that, you know, like I think about Ananias and Sapphira, you know, that story of them who, when they came and there were all the people in the church were giving these gifts to, uh, to, to, to the church and, and laying, they were selling land and houses and laying the proceeds at the apostles' feet. And uh, there was one couple, Ananias and Sapphira, who sold their land, but kept back a portion of it, but said that they were giving it all to the church. And Peter confronts them with this word of knowledge and says, why are you lying to the Holy Spirit? And first, uh, Sapphira, and then Ananias, they drop down dead in this gathering of God's people. And you think, what the heck is going on there? Where's the God of mercy, man? Where's the God of love? There was something that was so significant about God's presence and his power that was being manifest and released at that time in that season that to to lie to the Holy Spirit so overtly, arrogantly was costly. I think about some of the things that Paul says. Romans 11, behold the kindness and the severity of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, he says, knowing the, the fear of the Lord, we, persu- we persuade men. Do you know it's the, the revelation of the fear of God that provokes us to share Christ with others? Philippians 2, Paul says to uh, work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. And so I want to invite us to, can we embrace and, and go on this journey of seeking to understand what does it look like for us as followers of Jesus to fear the Lord? What does it look like for us who have the promise? You know, I'm thinking of 1 John uh, 4, there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And so there's this exhortation in scripture. Wait a minute. I have a a certainty that there is no punishment remaining for me if I am in Christ. But what does it look like for me to hold intention with this reality that I am loved and forgiven and God is my father and I relate to him deeply and intimately, but yet understand at the same time that my God is a consuming fire, that I am to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. I am not to take for granted the finished work of Christ for me on the cross. There's something about that revelation of his holiness and being inspired to be in awe of him that provokes something. It positions postures our hearts for good things. So what are those good things? Let's look at them. The first one we see is that fearing God brings us into close, intimate relationship with him. We see that in verses 11 and 12. So great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. The Hebrew word in this passage translated steadfast love is a very powerful word. It's the Hebrew word hesed. The New Testament equivalent is the word agape, uh, translated love. But often in the Old Testament, it's loving kindness or steadfast love. It's, it speaks of a covenantal love. It speaks of the decision to love. It speaks of uh, 
a love that once it's granted, it cannot be taken away. It cannot be lost. It speaks of the love that a father should have for a child, uh, the love that a, a husband should have for a wife. It's tied to a promise, a commitment that cannot be broken. Do you know, as those who've, called, who've been called to walk in covenant family together in the church, we're to love with a hesed, with an agape kind of love. But I've found that in my life, often our natural relationship with our father, whatever we've experienced, can make it challenging for us sometimes to understand the fear of the Lord and hold in tension the fear of the Lord with his love for us. One of the things I really appreciate about my dad for all of his flaws, there were two things he did really well when I was younger. He disciplined me. There were boundaries and consequences for crossing those boundaries. And he was very verbally uh, affectionate towards me. He was uh, verbally and physically affectionate. Lots of hugs, lots of I love you, um, discipline as well. But, and that served, that served me really well in a lot of ways, you know, to be able to receive correction and discipline and a rebuke from the Lord uh, while, to, while at the same time to be clear and certain that God loves me and he can manifest his love towards me in this way, in his correction. But one of the things I've been thinking through lately is how my relationship with my father, which really went awry when I hit my teenage years, has impacted my identity and the way that I relate to God in the boundaries of my intimacy with him. And there's supposed to be this dynamic that happens in our relationship with, between a son and a father, where around the teenage years, there's to be a greater friendship, uh, a little bit more of, a, of an intimate connection, a depth of relationship that's no longer, all right, I'm the one in authority in your life and you need to do what I say, to, all right, now it's your opportunity to uh, live out this, these values that I've sown into you and I'm gonna coach you and help you along the way. And as that grows and as, as it's seen that, man, these values are really good values and they're owned by the son, then there begins to be this alignment and friendship and connection. But what I realized was I never experienced that with my dad because he, he went a bit crazy and um, our relationship began to be severed in my later teenage years. And so he dropped the ball in many ways. And so I've really been thinking about this a lot lately because God has been speaking to me about my identity and how I see myself. And I've shared with this with you before, but this was a profound revelation for me. In January, God very clearly said, I need you to stop relating to me like a son who needs to be disciplined and start relating to me like a king whom I've called to rule. And as I began to think about that and break that down and, and you know, like I have, the, have had this tendency to feel closest to God only when I'm being disciplined. But that's a really immature way of relating to God. There should be this depth of relationship that I walk into as 
a king, a co-heir in the kingdom of God, as someone who's a co-heir with Christ of the covenant promises that are, are mine, someone who's called to be an ambassador, an extender of the kingdom. And now I'm in part of the family business. And, and as I begin to pray and think and ask the Lord, what does it mean for me to relate to you like a king who's called to rule? He's began to speak to me about how a father and son, a king and his prince may sit down together and the king just begin to unfold wisdom and bring him in on some of the secrets that nobody else gets to know about. And I began to think about passages like John 15, 15, where Jesus says to his disciples, no longer do I call you servants or slaves in one translation, for the servant or the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father, I've made known to you. There's this sense of, of, of Jesus trying to take the disciples out of this um, immature relationship with him as a servant slave into a relationship of friendship where he can begin to share deep secrets. Psalm 25, 14 is, is another one. I love this. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he makes known to them his covenant. Man, how beautiful is that? There's another translation of this term friendship. The, the secret of the Lord. The secret things of the Lord are reserved for those who fear him. The fear of the Lord gives us an access to the deep secrets of the Father. Revelation knowledge of covenant promises. Blessing, you begin to unfold, and it begins to unfold in your life because you have a revelation of all the good things he wants to bring into our lives. Are you hungry for this kind of relationship? To be honest, I feel that God's only just leading me into this in a deepening way. And I feel like I can only bring you to this point of, hey, can you join with me on this journey of going into a deepening friendship with the Father? Can we position ourselves to, to fear him, to be in awe of him, to open ourselves to let him just invade every part of our hearts and our lives that we, we could know the deepest things of God? that we could be entrusted with his secrets, an intimacy, a closeness. Better go pretty quick here through these next two. The next one, fearing God helps us make the most of our short lives. Verse 13, Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And then David begins to break down what he means about this compassion that's really like a recognition of his weakness. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. And then if you keep reading in 15, he begins to speak about how the days of man is like grass. It's like a flower in the field. It comes up, it looks beautiful, and then it's gone. You know, David would speak often of the brevity of life and the wisdom that comes when we recognize and understand how little time we have. 
Don't miss this. I remember once when I was back in the day when when the first, I might've been 22, 23, I don't know, but maybe a little bit older, 25, whatever. They had this thing that came out called a Palm Pilot. Anybody remember that? The Palm Pilot. It was like this little pocket calendar, electronic calendar. And I don't know, I was mucking around with this thing one day and I had just decided that, all right, God's covenant promise for me is to live to be an old man. I'm going to live to be 100 years old. That was what I just started declaring and believing. I'm going to live to be 100. As I've gotten older, I've started declaring that I'm going to be healthy up to 100. <laughs> but, I, but I'm still declaring 100. But um, I decided, all right, 100 years old. So I went to my 100th birthday, the 29th of October, 2074. I went to it on the little electronic calendar. And I'm just sitting there looking at the, this day. 29th of October, 2074. And it was like this moment, this realization, I'm going to die. <laughs> there it is. That's the day. <laughs> I'm going to die. This is that's this is it. It was like I got fast forwarded to the day. Here I am. I'm on the Palm Pilot. The day that I've died. But you know what in my in my in my lack of wisdom. Cuz here's the problem. When you're 25 years old, you think, "Man, I got so much life left to live." My first thought was, "Oh my gosh, I'm only a quarter of the way through my life. This is amazing. I got so much left to go." But then I remember not long after sitting with my grandfather and he would start telling stories about previous years. And, and every time he, you know, he tell me these World War II stories and just incredible. I could sit and listen to him for hours. And uh, then he'd just get this moment where he'd be like, man, where did the time go? It seems like just yesterday. And then he would, he would just, one time I remember he just kind of like zoned out, spaced out. And he, and he got almost a little bit like you could see this anger of regret come over his face because he spent 40, 50, 60, whatever years it was as a, a raging alcoholic. There was no PTSD diagnosis. It was you just self-medicate with alcohol when you come back from World War II. And that's what he did. And you could just see this regret, this realization of how much of his life he wasted. And what David is saying here in this passage is that the fear of the Lord positions us with a wisdom to embrace the reality, even at a younger age, of the brevity of life. Mother Teresa said that from heaven, even the most miserable earthly life will look like one bad night in an inconvenient hotel. It's this eternal perspective God brings to us that I have a limited amount of time to do what God has called me to do here, and all of my eternity is dependent upon the eternal treasure that I store up in heaven while I'm here. I got no opportunity after this 
to lay any crowns at Jesus' feet except the crowns that I can take with me from this life. You know, we get this picture from Paul that when we pass from this life into eternity, some stuff's going to burn up and some stuff's going to go with us. We had a friend that uh, was a missionary from the States who was a part of our church in Melbourne that we were part of, and there was this tragic accident. He ate something at a party and went into anaphylactic shock. It was the 10th anniversary party of a couple in our church. Anaphylactic shock, rushed him to the hospital. There was traffic, called the ambulance. Anyway, he was gone in 20 minutes, dead, 20 minutes. I was overseas in New Zealand. Lives was there. The, their kids, they had two small boys. His wife was pregnant. They were at, a, at our house with another babysitter. And um, it was rough. She went on, uh, amazing story, ended up marrying my friend Beto. He, he would, uh, that was her husband. He used he had he was uh, first in New Zealand as a missionary and he would gather these 12 men together to disciple them in his home once a week they'd meet in, in his home. One of those guys was a guy named Jeremy that um, ended up marrying his wife. It was crazy that he's discipling the future father of his sons had no idea. But there's this. Uh, dream that Holly had, she wrote about in this book that she wrote of her story. And she said, Beto came and visited her in this dream. And in this dream, he was appealing to her, begging her to give everything and sell out everything for Jesus because he was saying, I have given all the crowns I have to give to him. I have nothing left to give him. Tell the boys, store, live for eternity, store up treasure in heaven. Once you get here, you're not going to care about so many other things. There's only a few things that you're going to care about. Give yourself to those things. And the fear of the Lord positions us to live with that eternal perspective in, in mind making the most of the short lives that we have. Finally, fearing God cuts off generational curse and brings generational blessing. It accelerates generational blessing. And we see this in this third mention of the fear of the Lord. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. There's that hesed again on those who fear him. And then he explains, he's going to break it down a little deeper and his righteousness to children's children. What David is saying here is that when we fear the Lord, our grandchildren will benefit. When we don't fear the Lord, our grandchildren will have to fight the battles that we refuse to fight or that we were powerless to fight. One of the reasons the church has decreased in influence in previous generations is because we've lacked that fear of the Lord. There's been something of generational blessing that has missed us. We haven't imparted to the next generation because we haven't feared him. We've been apathetic. We've been passive. And now there are 
battles that we have to fight. There's new ground that we have to take in culture because there's no blessing to inherit. There's no inheritance transfer. It's interesting that the farther that we've moved away from kingdom values, the less we value children and the lower the birth rate has gone. Think about the spirit of the age right now. Oh, it's not enough to be a mom. If you want significance, you need to do something outside of the home. Yeah, yeah, you got to be a mom, but you need to do something outside of the home to really matter. Do you know there was a time when the call to motherhood was a high calling in culture? That it was embraced as a sense of responsibility, ownership, that there are no more important disciples than our children. And so we're going to have babies because those babies are going to grow up and change the world. We're going to impart our values to them, and there's going to be generational blessing transfer them, and it's going to accelerate even to the next generation, and we're going to raise them well. And our children's, uh, our grandchildren's floor is going to be our children's ceiling, and they're going to have an even better starting place. This is God's desire in the kingdom of God, that as we fear him and we transfer uh, the, the knowledge of the fear of the Lord and, and help our children fear him, there is a transfer of generational blessing. But so much of this, the junk that we live under has been something that we've inherited from the previous generation. You know, think about the, the unforgiveness, the challenge, the difficulties in life. You know, we were talking in our life group the other night about how uh, we, we, we often tend to have these ideas and identity about ourselves that's connected to the words that our parents spoke over us or the things that they should have spoken over us but didn't. But why was that the case? Because they're just as broken and insecure. You got to get set free from the curse of the previous generation so that it doesn't transfer to the next generation. Man, I think about my dad and his uh, his adultery and and how there was this generational curse of sexual immorality that I had to I had to fight and resist. And when I came into the church or into the kingdom bound by lust and bound by all these things, it was a hard battle. It was like this Goliath. And I still feel like at times I am, I am the one that's like, all right, no, 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 this is as far as this generational curse goes. I am not, I am going to resist. I'm going to fight. And there's going to be time. Yeah, there's times I got to, I missed the mark. I got to confess my sin. Babe, I've been tempted with lust this week. Pray for me. Help me. I want to be open. I want to be, be transparent. But the goal of the, the in the fear of the Lord, the, the goal is that I can defeat a Goliath so that my children have a different starting point. That there can be a, see, there was a permission that the enemy had in my life because of my dad's covenantal headship in my life. And because he refused to resist that, because there was a lack of the fear of the Lord, because he gave himself fully to that, the enemy then had covet a covenantal right and permission to plague my life. Now, Jesus comes along. He sets me free. The curse has been broken. But that's that, the, that enemy is still right there. He's trying. He's trying to hold on. 
I had to appropriate the cross. I had to appropriate the finished work of Christ. I had to confess God's word over my life. So that now in my covenantal headship, there's a covering and a protection for my children. That my my daughters aren't going to go looking for love from, from every little boy in town because they're getting the love from me that they need. Because I've received something from my father that I can impart to my children. And in that headship, that covenantal leadership of my family, there is a covering and a protection, and I'm resisting and fighting. And sure, this might be a battle, there might be temptation, but they have a better starting place than I have. That is the beauty of the fear of the Lord. That's the gift that the fear of the Lord brings to us. Can we, as a people, position ourselves to value the fear of the Lord. Thank you for joining us for this message today. We don't assume that every person listening has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so today we invite you to begin following Jesus as your Lord and Savior. The Bible teaches that every one of us has been created for a relationship with God. Sin has separated us from that relationship, but God loved us so much that he gave us his one and only son, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived, died, and rose again, conquering sin, Satan, and death itself. If we believe in our hearts that God has raised Jesus from the dead, and we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. So if you are ready to pray in faith, turning away from your sin and believing in Jesus for your salvation, please pray this prayer. Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God, and I ask you to forgive me and cleanse my heart from all of my sin. I receive by faith the free gift of eternal life, and I ask that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit. I thank you that I am born again as a child of God and that you have made me a new creation in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you have prayed that prayer for the first time, we would love to know and help connect you to a local church in your area. You can contact us on our website, numa.church. Thank you for listening.